I am glad you're here for the last week of the Joseph series. If you're at home, welcome. Glad you're here as well. Uh, we've, been, we've been here for a little while, and I hope uh, you've seen the value in understanding that this, the Scriptures that we read, the Scriptures that we spend time with, they're layered, they're deep, they have a lot of important things to talk about. And I hope that as that's come up, I hope that's kind of settled in. There's a whole lot more we could do in Joseph, but we're, we're just going to do the last thing here. Two weeks from now, if you'll come back, we're going to do a Passover meal. So it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a full-fledged meal, but we'll deck the place out with tables. We'll put a Seder plate on it and um, cups, and we'll have a mini Passover. Uh, we love doing this uh, because there is so much Jesus in that Passover meal, and it gets us ready for Easter, which is right around the corner. The next week is Easter, and we'll start a new series. So I hope you'll hang out and come back for some of that. It'll be good. Last week, we did a parallel. We've, we found um, a story in the story of Joseph that happened kind of twice. It repeated. There were links that help you connect and go, have I heard this before? Have I seen this before? And it was because there was a do-over. Joseph was stuck. And if he didn't start thinking and living and acting differently, he was just going to repeat some patterns that he had. And so we talked about that. Today, we're going to look at a different parallel. And this parallel, it's another do-over, but not in the same way. It's not in the same way at all, because the person in the second story, Joseph, would not even have remembered anything from the story that it's linked to. And yet, uh, I'll be able to show you that there's some clear links, and you're going to have to ask yourself, why? Why would the writer work so hard to tie these two stories together? What are they trying to reveal? What are they trying to show us? And so we're going to spend some time doing that today. I think it'll be worth your energy. Let me just recap real quick. Uh, we've gone through 39, Genesis 39. Joseph and Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, makes a mess. In 40, he's in jail. He ends up interpreting dreams. In chapter 41, he's elevated into Pharaoh's court. And for seven years, he's been bringing in good harvest. So all of that's kind of going on. When chapter 42 rolls around, we're two years into the famine. Food is scarce. People are starving. And so his brothers travel to Egypt because they know they have food. And something fascinating happens in verse 42. I want you to see this. This is verse 7. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Why? Why not just reveal yourself right there on the spot? Why did you choose harsh words with them? What's going on? If you're thinking, oh, I think he's doing that because he doesn't know if the brothers are still the kind of brothers who sold him into slavery... Who cares? He's second in command in Egypt. He holds power. If anybody should be afraid, if anybody should be terrified, it's those brothers. Because if they find out the person they sold into slavery is in charge and he has all of this power, what could he do to them? So why? Why is he responding this way? It seems, it seems rather odd. Now, you have to grant 
that there's a whole bunch of things that Joseph doesn't know. Because this is, this is curious. I don't know if you'll think this is interesting. I do. By the time his brothers show up in Egypt, he has been in an elevated position for nine years. And he never sent a messenger home to dad, hey, I'm alive. You ought to come talk to me in Egypt. Why? Like if, if you finally had the freedom to communicate with his father that you were convinced loved you, why wouldn't you do that? Here's what Joseph knows. Joseph knows that dad sent him out to that field where his brothers grabbed him, threw him in a pit, and then sold him into slavery. He does not know if his father was involved with that plan or not. He does not know that the brothers took back his jacket dipped in blood and said he's dead. We do not, he does not know they lied to him about the whole thing. He has no idea that his dad was in grief over this and could not be consoled. He, he doesn't know any of that. He knows his dad didn't come looking for him. Never once did he get word that somebody was trying to find him. And so he concluded, I'm, my, I'm on my own. But even then, at this point in his life, he's second in command. He, he's, he's got life. By the, by, he's got it. Everything he wants. And yet, he chooses to act harshly and to hide, to not reveal himself, to be deceptive with his brothers. Look, I, I, think, I think what we just found out is that there's something going on in the heart of Joseph that's off. And you want to know what's even more weird? It's been 22 years 22 years since he's seen his brothers. He's carved out for himself a, a pretty great life. Second in command of Egypt. He made it through some really tough times. He's, he's uh, organized some stuff where he's saving hundreds of thousands of lives. Who knows how many lives he's actually saving because of what he's doing. He's got a pretty good life going. And yet the moment he sees his brothers, he starts acting like the family, almost immediately. That family masters at deception. I made a list of all the different things that you could point to that as a family, they have deceived not only others, but each other too. So you've got the story with Laban and Jacob. We're going to go and talk about that. Full of deception. You got Simeon and Levi who told the city of Shechem that, you know what? If you'll do this, you can marry our daughter. And then went and killed them all after they went and got circumcised. Deception. Joseph gave a false report about his brothers. Wasn't true. The brothers lied to dad, said he was dead. Judah doesn't follow through with Tamar, deceives her about what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. This family lives in deception. And Joseph, who's been apart from it for so long, who's had to make a name based on the integrity that he's lived with, falls right back in as soon as he recognizes them. Covers up, hides, starts to play games. What, what kind of games? 
Well, he starts with a test. He wants to make sure his brother is alive. And so he says, listen, I'll give you grain, but I'm going to keep Simeon in jail. You travel home. When you return with the, the youngest brother you claim you have, then I'll release him from jail. They don't know it's Joseph's younger brother. So all of this stuff, all of this stuff is happening under a veil of deception. Now, I, I want to come back to the Joseph story, but I need to give you some background on the other story that parallels what's about to happen in Joseph's story. And so I'm going to move pretty quickly, and it's one of the, it's one of the places that I didn't tell you about. They had deception as well. The story starts with Isaac having two boys. He has uh, a boy named Esau and a boy named Jacob. Esau is the oldest, which means upon Isaac's death, he has the right for two portions of his inheritance. It's the way it worked back then. Um, and Jacob knew it. So on, on an occasion, he went in, dressed up, hid himself, disguised himself. His, his father is uh, blind, had horrible eyesight, and tricked him and stole his brother's inheritance. He got the double portion. He deceived his brother to do it. What you find in the text happening after that is Isaac suggests that Jacob should go home to where Abraham came from to find a bride from his family. And it was twofold. He wanted him to find a bride from their family. And he also wanted to make sure that Esau didn't kill him. Like Esau could have been angry enough to do that. So the scriptures record that Jacob traveled north. He went back to where Abraham came from and he runs into his family and the guy he runs into is Uncle Laban. And Uncle Laban is a dirtball. I don't, there's no other way. I mean, he is terrible, but it's okay because so is Jacob. These two are made, they're like a match in heaven for each other. They're both deceptive, underhanded, terrible kind of people. And what happens is um, Jacob falls in love with Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel. He loves her and wants to marry her. And Laban says, okay, I'll come up with a deal for you. Work for me for free for seven years and you can marry Rachel. And this is how the scriptures recorded. I think it's hilarious. Verse um, 20 of chapter 29. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her, right? That is Hallmark stuff right there. Your heart's just going, oh my word, I need to put that in a card to my wife right now, right? That beautiful kind of stuff. One problem. He's deeply in love with Rachel, but Laban has figured out that he's an incredible shepherd. He's getting wealthy because Jacob is doing such a good job. His herds are growing. They're healthy. All kinds of great things are happening because he's so good at what he does. And he doesn't want to lose Jacob. So on the wedding night, he pulls a fast one. So um, this is not like our culture. I mean, we wouldn't, you, I'd have to explain a whole bunch of things. But at the wedding, there was a marital tent. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's exactly right, and that's exactly what's going on, and everybody would wait, um, and this would happen in the evening, but it's dark. They don't have lights, right? So, so he swaps out his oldest daughter, Leah, and puts her in the tent, and Jacob goes in, 
and he sleeps with her and finds out in the morning that he has officially married the wrong girl. <laughs> you are not joking. He's not happy. Like he goes to Laban. You deceived me. What do you think's going on here? I did this seven years for Rachel. And Laban's like, he, he uses, he's scamming, man. He basically said, I couldn't let my oldest daughter go unmarried. She had to marry first, but you can marry Rachel now. I'll give you a deal. Work seven more years for free for me, and you can marry Rachel right now. And he says, what? Yes. You saw the Hallmark card. He said yes. He marries her. Two sisters married that way. Think there's going to be some issues? <laughs> Lots. Lots of issues happen. We're going to fast forward past all of that. 14 years have gone by. He's put in the second seven years. And now it's time for him to build up a little bit of his estate. So he enters into an agreement with Laban. I'll work, I'll continue to work for you, but I want a certain number of animals. And it's going to be based on the coats that they have, like the color of their coats. And he makes this agreement because Jacob is deceiving Laban. He knows how to make sure the color of the coats are a certain way by giving the animals certain things to eat. And so he starts feeding the animals in a way that his animals grow into a big herd and Laban's animals are a small herd. But don't worry. Remember, Laban is a dirtbag. So he just changes and says, hey, I made that agreement with you, but I want those other animals now. You're going to have to take these animals now. And they just go back and forth messing with each other until it reaches a breaking point. It's about six years Later, So we're, he's now been north for about 20 years. And what he does is he, he calls the girls, the two daughters, out into a field and he says, listen, things are not right between me and Laban. I want to get out of here. I just want to pack up our stuff and run. I don't want to tell him we're doing it, but you're his daughters. And they both, they both basically said, yeah, we don't like our dad either. We're in. Right? And so they make a plan in this field and then they execute it. They go home, the daughters, the grandkids, the servants, all of the stuff that he now owns, they pick up and they leave, not telling Laban what's going on. Laban doesn't find out for three days that his whole family has left to go back to Canaan. And Laban is furious. There's a there's two reasons he's furious. He's furious, one, because they left without saying anything, but there's a second reason, and Jacob doesn't know it. On their way out of town, Rachel, his wife, youngest daughter of Laban, snuck into Laban's tent and grabbed his idols and stuck them on her bags. She's going to steal his idols. In this world, in that context, what you were messing with was the, the entity that was blessing you. And if you stole that, you could be putting me in a disastrous place. Are you trying to harm me? Are you trying to hurt me by taking that? So he pursues Jacob with his whole family, and he does not have good intentions. 
He intends to do some damage. It's so bad that God interrupts him in a dream and warns him, "You, you better be careful. You will not harm, you will not do anything to Jacob. Okay, so that's where we're at in the story. And now, now let's start making some parallels, okay? So if we go back to Joseph, he's done test number one. They pass. They bring back Benjamin with him. He sees that Benjamin is alive. That's great. He lets Simeon out of jail. He gives them all food. And, and then he reveals himself, right? No. No, he's not done deceiving his brothers yet. He goes to his steward and he says, listen, steward, I want you to take this silver goblet that I use to drink from and I want you to put this in the bag of my brother Benjamin. Put it down in there deep so he can't find it. And then once that's done, give him the food and send them all home. So still, having not revealed himself, he sends his brothers home. And then the fun begins. So I'm going to start in... 44, and I'm going to show you where some of these links take place, okay? So in verse 4, Joseph's brothers had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once, and when you catch them, say to them. So there's a chase, there's a pursuit, and there's going to be a catching. And in Laban's story, that's exactly what happens in 31 Genesis 31, 23, taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. The pursuit and catching are done in both stories and they use the exact exact same identical words. Now you're like, man, that's stretching it. Yeah, it could feel like that, but you just have to wait until the rest of the pile is made and then you'll understand that there's a whole lot of links here, not just that one. So you have that pursuit going on. Um, not just the pursuit, but this is what's said. When they finally catch up to Joseph's brothers, the steward says this at the end of verse 4. Why have you repaid good with evil? Why have you done that? And this is what gets said. By God to Laban in a dream after they've caught up to Joseph. This is verse 24 of 31. Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Good and evil, both. Mentioned again in both texts. There's more. And in both texts, the pursuit was happening because of an alleged stolen item. Um, In both cases, most of the people had no idea what was going on. Jacob didn't know stuff was stolen. The brothers didn't know stuff was stolen. Joseph had placed it there. So you have that going on, and nobody's the wiser as to what's happening. Now, in verse 5, the steward catches up and claims that they've stolen something very particular. He says it's this. Isn't this my master's, uh, the cup my master drinks from? He also uses it for divination. So the silver goblet that he put in the bag, Joseph used to help him determine what would happen in the future, to see things down the path a little bit. We don't, I don't know how that process worked. I don't know why he was using it that way. But the scriptures say that that's one of the uses. Interesting to note that the idols that were taken from Laban were used for divination in their culture. And if you're like, well, that's cool, that's neat. 
But that doesn't, that's not actually a direct link. Well, maybe this will help. This is Genesis 30, verse 27. Laban said to Jacob, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Both men practiced divination. Both men had objects of divination. And those objects are in both stories. So you have that going on. At the end of 31, verse 32, of Jacob is so confident that nobody has stolen the idols. He says, but if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. Like, I'm, I'll take their life. He just put Rachel's life on the line. If you're a little bit worried, don't worry. Rachel is just as deceptive as the rest of her family, and she's going to figure it out and be okay, all right? So she deceives her way through this as well. The whole family is just messed up. But we have the same thing happening in the story with Joseph. The brothers are so convinced that nobody stole anything. They all agree to say this together. Verse 9, if any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. Now Benjamin's life is on the line. Verse 37, or 33 of chapter 31. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Pay attention to the order. This is the order that they use in Joseph's story. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. Is that what happened in the earlier story? Yeah. You have all of these links going back and forth and back and forth. The, the writer is trying to get you to think, have I seen this before? Have I heard this before? And then when you realize it's part of Laban's story, you were meant to be dragged back and to use these two stories to help you understand what's going on. And I got to tell you, it's a little bit confusing because Laban, he's a terrible person. And Joseph, he's a good guy. Yes, he failed. He lied about his brothers so that he would be elevated by his dad, so that he would gain favor. That wasn't good. It didn't justify him being sold as a slave. But that guy withstood being in a pit twice, being, in, being elevated through dreams, having developed a relationship with God. He overcame his own internal struggles. He's now in a place where he's doing things that are honoring God and, and getting the family's mission of blessing the world back on track. He's a good guy. But you cannot miss to what the scripture is suggesting by linking these two stories is that Joseph is the new Laban in the story. Joseph is the one who's using his power to deceive when he didn't have to, who's, who's being underhanded in the whole process. And you have to ask yourself, how in the world does our good guy get to that place. I think maybe we get there by asking just a simple question. 
Have you ever been betrayed by somebody? Like if you, if I use that word, it has a lot of things that are implied and maybe something immediately comes to your mind, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be something like, have you ever been wounded by somebody? Has somebody disrespected you in a way that it hurt? See, these things that I'm talking about, they have the ability to leave a mark in your soul. They hurt, and they're not easily fixed. And if you don't address it, if you don't find a way to deal with it, um, a lot of bad things can happen. It can morph into just memories that you have by just letting it age long enough, but having never dealt with it, having never found a way to address it in your life, what can happen is that something can remind you of that moment. You can run into a person. You can hear something said. You can remember that feeling of disrespect coming from somebody else. And all of a sudden, you are flooded with all of those emotions that you felt long ago that you thought were gone. In fact, what's weird about this process is that you can think, this doesn't match my life at all right now. This doesn't match Joseph's life. Joseph, Joseph had a good life. He's doing some really good stuff. But he's suddenly acting in a way that, that reveals that something has happened in his heart that has not been repaired. There is bitterness coming out. There is resentment coming out. And he is speaking harshly and being deceptive with his brothers. You would expect maybe something better. Except the problem is, for 22 years, he hasn't had to deal with this. He just kind of let it go into the back of his mind. Let bygones be bygones. This will age out into a memory, no big deal. And it was a big deal. It turned into something where as soon as he saw those brothers, all of those things erupted in him. And you know what the scripture might be suggesting here? I actually think it is. I think the scriptures are suggesting that when it comes to relationships, there's no good guys and bad guys. There's just what's going on with your heart and what's going on with their heart. See, it's easy when you can identify yourself as the good guy to believe that the way that you've responded by either bearing that or trying to just let it age or whatever, however you've gone about that, you feel justified because you're the good guy. But if you're not careful, it will rot your heart. It will show up and come out of you in ways that you don't expect when you don't think it should. Like, this does not reflect my life right now. Why do I feel this way? Why am I saying this way? You know what's interesting? I think this is, uh, I kind of love this. Literally, the brothers have switched positions in the story. In the first story, when the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, who had all the power? They did. They made him feel powerless and hopeless in the bottom of that pit. Who has all the power now in this story? Joseph. And he's making them dance 
like marionettes on the end of his strings, playing with them, and they feel hopeless. Because what does he say to them? I'm locking up your brother, Benjamin. He's going to stay in prison. And they all know that that will break their father's heart. They are in a hopeless position. And here you have it. Deception playing out in this family all over again. How in the world do you break this stuff? How do you get to the other side when there's so much pain in a friendship or a relationship or even a work colleague? How do you get to the other side of this kind of stuff? The scriptures reveal that because it's an issue of the heart, somebody's heart has to change. And if you're used to using good guy, bad guy language, you won't think it's your heart that needs to change. And in this case, it's not Joseph's heart that changes first. Whose heart changes first? His brother, Judah. See, Judah made a promise to dad that Benjamin would come home or he'd put his life on the line. So when Joseph says, I'm locking Benjamin up for the rest of his life, Judah steps forward and says, I'll take his place. I'll go to jail. I'll give up my life for his. I made a promise. This is what I'm going to do for the benefit of the family. And what happens? His act of sacrifice breaks Joseph's heart. This happens in 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself. Oh, he's been in control up to this point. He's, he's been making him dance. He's tightly controlled how he thought and how he felt, and all of that is getting stripped away right now. And he breaks. And finally, after all of this time, he reveals to his brothers, hey, I'm Joseph. And you know what the scriptures record? They're terrified, which is exactly right. They would have been terrified in the first place. They're terrified now. This guy holds all the power. We wronged him. There's a good chance he's going to make us pay. But his heart has been changed by the sacrifice that he's seen. And this is what happens instead. Verse 14. Then he threw his arm around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. Like the family's starting to heal. Things have been revealed. I love verse 15. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. You know what's interesting to me? In the text, there appear to be only two brothers that the text reveals had a change of heart. Judah and Joseph. We have, we have no evidence that any of the brothers are any different from when they threw him in the pit in the first place and sold him into slavery. And yet, because of Judah's changed heart and Joseph's changed heart, they're brought into the reconciliation. Do you see that? Their hearts might not have been changed up, leading up to that point, but something's happening in all of their hearts at that point. And I want you to see this because I love this. I love this. This is the last part of verse 15. You need to see this. Afterward, his brothers 
talked with him. Maybe one of the most important verses in this whole section of Scripture here. That little phrase there. Um, At Christmas time, I took a picture. I think we have it this time. Yes. I told the first service we had it, and I lied. It wasn't ready. I took a picture of um, all of our boys sitting around playing a game with the grandkids on their laps. They were just talking. There was uh, nothing special being discussed. There's nothing earth-shattering happening. Um, They were just talking about life and the game and enjoying each other. And I thought when I saw that, this is the kind of gift from the hand of God that you can't take for granted. And I took a picture because I love it. I want to show you where this family was. This Jacob's sons. Band, if you'll come up here, I'm going to go to 37. And in chapter 37, Joseph has lied about his brothers so that he could be elevated. And the scriptures say this about their relationship. When his brothers saw their their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. These guys couldn't speak a word to him without it being filled with hate and malice. What I love, what I love about this is this, this linking to Lot, or the linking to the Laban story. It is a redo, but it's not a redo for Joseph. It's a redo for the family because that family has been steeped in deception over and over and over again. And when you read through the story of Joseph, you'll see big things that God's doing. God's getting the family back on track to accomplish the mission. The mission was two parts. He's going to bless them and make a great nation out of them. And he's going to bless the world through them. And the world is being blessed through what Joseph is doing. He's getting big things back on track because Judah had to have his heart right so that he would become the person who would be in the lineage of Jesus. There are big things going on, but do not miss this. The family was healed. The story was being reshaped so that even the small thing that was going on that maybe didn't seem as significant as those big things were just as important to God. He he was a good God who wanted to find a way to bless this family and the only way to do that was to get a redo on the way that they deceived each other and instead to have a different heart attitude in the moment than what this family has been practicing for all of those years and they did it. They leaned in to where God was taking them and he began the healing process. Why is this important? (laughs) My friends, it is easy to think that God cares about the big stuff going on in our world and the little things, the little hurts, the harms that I've been through, he just doesn't have time for. And I I want you to know it's not true. Our God is a good God. He cares about what's going on in your relationships. He cares about what's going on in your heart. 
And the story's not fully over until he's given a chance to rewrite that, which is what he does here. He rewrites the story of that family. And I'm going to tell you right now, he is still in the business of doing that. Why? Because he's good. It's not just the big things. It's our heart and our lives that he wants to rework too. The only question is, will you lean in and let him? Because he'll rewrite your story too. I've asked the band to play a song about the goodness of God. I want you to be um, reminded of that truth in your life. The reason that you would lean in and allow God to do some heart stuff for you is because he's good. He's not forgotten about that wound. He's not forgotten about that betrayal. He's not forgotten about that disrespect. And he doesn't want it to become resentment and anger. He doesn't want it to turn you into somebody that you won't recognize. But you're going to have to lean into a good God in order to do that kind of work. Later in the song, they're going to ask you to stand and sing with them. And I hope you'll add your voices loudly to the truth that's found in that song. He's just a good God.